0: also be optimistic since uh, these forecasts were made well in advance of knowing the length of the lockdowns. The crisis that we face today is different from the previous one in that it has its roots in a health crisis and has spread to real and financial sectors. The 2008 crisis had its roots in subprime lending and insufficiently capitalized banks and, and emanated from within the financial sector. Given the tightly integrated supply chains, the lockdowns have affected trade, manufacturing, services, and within services, tourism and travel. There has also been psychological contagion. The crisis is forcing states to develop rescue packages on a scale that has not been seen before, creating huge financial costs that pose a threat to the financial stability of countries across the world. The global financial system faces a dual challenge to sustain free flow of credit amidst declining growth and to manage the heightened risks. According to the IMF's Global Financial Stability Report, the financial systems are already feeling an impact. Asset prices are down and financial markets have crashed. In this background, the financial system that was created in 1944 after World War II is feeling the strain once again. The set of institutions, currencies and the payment tools that were developed were very, very America Central, and they are feeling the strain as well. China's growing pull on the world system is expressed in the fact that it occupies 15.5% of global GDP, up from 3.6% in 2000. It is the world's second largest economy, and it is deeply woven into world's international and global trade. Yet it counts for very little in the financial system because of the hegemony of the dollar. Obituaries of the dollar have been written in the past, but many feel that the status quo is too entrenched to be challenged. But also consider this. The list of 30 globally financial systemically important institutions includes four Chinese banks, up from only one in 2012. But as I said, skeptics say that China still needs to develop soft power. Whatever happens, to the financial system, the G20 is and has been of great relevance to global financial resilience. And today it is more important than ever before, because if ever multilateralism was needed, it is now. As most of you know, ICREER has been involved in G20 research since more than a decade now. Since 2009, we have been hosting uh, annual international conferences and there have been eminent speakers who have spoken at our conferences including Shri Suresh Prabhuji, All of our research on G20 is available on our portal, and I will encourage all of you to please spare a few moments and look at the immense work that Iqir has done in the G20 arena. In our latest seminar initiative, we seek to expand our reach to a larger audience to build meaningful conversation around issues faced by the global economy. And this is one such example. While many of you present here have been part of our earlier G20 conferences, also there are many who are probably participating for the first time. A very warm welcome to all of you present here, and I truly hope that you have a wonderful and intellectual productive seminar. And I no doubt that you will, because our speaker for the day is Suresh Prabhuji, who if he had not been a politician, I think he would surely have been a scholar. He is a member of parliament, uh, Rajya Sabha in India's G20 Sherpa and also the Sherpa to the G7. He has led several ministries in the past, commerce and industry, civil aviation, railways, environment, power and heavy industries. And if I could just add that he has left a mark in each one of them. In commerce, he developed a pathway to increase exports In railways, to increase spending on R&D and safety. In civil aviation, to increase employment and connectivity just to me name a few of his achievements. He has also been the chairman of the task force on interlinking railways. He has been four time member of Lok Sabha from Rajapur Constituency of Maharashtra. He is a chartered accountant by profession and a member of Institute of Chartered Accountants of India. I can think of no one better than Sri Suresh Prabhu to inaugurate our G20 at 20 seminar series. Once again, a warm welcome to all of you, especially to Sri Suresh Prabhuji For the privilege of hosting you in our inaugural seminar. Over to you, Prasad. And thank you
1: very much. Thank you, Dr. Prajat Kathuria. And thank you, Ikriyar, for making a beginning in this direction of finding out how the world should really be addressing so many challenges which are coming our way. And as you correctly said, Ikriyar has been playing very pivotal role in guiding the discourse on such global issues for a very long time. And is a think tank of international repute. And as we all know, any organization, any think tank, is known by the people who head it, known by the people who make it work. And therefore, we are very happy to have Dr. Rajat Kothuri as a person who actually heads it, steers it. And I'm sure in the years, we'll see more of you in terms of outcomes, which will really help global community to fathom with the challenges that we are going to face. I'm very happy that you started this series. Uh, And thank you for honoring me to be the inaugural speaker for the series. And as you said, India would be hosting G20 for the first time in 2022, two years from now. And that would be. I will the desired cause India would be celebrating the 75th anniversary of her independence the same year. So it is coinciding with that. And it will be time that India's journey post independence of 70 years would also be interesting to understand how the world has changed in those 75 years. And as you said, we need to therefore revisit some of the institutions that we created in the last 75 years, are they now fit enough? Can they stand the stress test of understanding whether the global challenges this institution can face now? As you know, we always carry out, the central banks carry out stress test for the banks. The individuals carry out stress test to understand how far they are healthy. But we have never carried out stress test for the global institutions. You must understand the efficacy of the institutions, the ability of the institution to face the challenges. And particularly, in normal times, this test test would have been required because of passage of such a long time. Even now, when the world is full of such complexities that we needed it more than any other time in the past. And now, while we are facing this big crisis, this is I mean, at least our generation has never seen anything like this. The economic history writers will also keep saying that we have actually not faced as complex complex situation as this any time in the past. The UK economy is going to contract, probably worse than it happened 350 years ago. The European eurozone, European Union, they are all contracting. US economy is contracting, and therefore. Japan yesterday, already in recession. So in such situation, how do you actually work in the future? I thank you for keeping this topic. But are we staring at a global economic crisis very soon? Or how soon? Whether it'll happen or not, it looks like a reality. How soon is a question? And why is that? Today, we had no choice but to give priority to saving lives. And therefore, most of the countries, starting with China, they started to deal with this health crisis by bringing complete closure of economic activities. And thus, movement of people. People are in their houses, offices are shut, economic activity is completely to standstill. So it's obvious when you have such a situation, the economy will be in a downward spiral. But what is the problem of COVID? Who are the fatalities? Doctors are saying that those who are dying, most of them, if not all, are suffering from comorbidity. They already had some underlying disease. Maybe heart ailment, a cancer, a blood pressure, a diabetes. And therefore, when corona hit them, they became susceptible to it and they died. The world economy is in a comorbidity situation before the crisis started the economy was already in big challenge in fact the world economic forum had created a global risk chart and they said already of the top 7 economies 6 economies were already on a deceleration mode which accounts for more than 50% of the global output. So they were already under desolation mode. IMF had already cautioning that world is slowing down, economies are slowing down. And even before that, the global trade was slowing down post 2008. So when this crisis hit, and we are taken these unprecedented measures, the world was already suffering from an economic malice. The global economies were already slowing down. And at such time, this worst crisis has happened. So it's a double whammy. We are already slowing down, so we had to think about measures of improving our economic activities. But at the same time, this happened. So now we are facing at a serious crisis, and therefore, we might have postponed it by giving huge packages. The U.S., the largest economy, has already given a package of three trillion, maybe three point two five trillion dollars. And the Democrats in Congress already passed the legislation to give another $3 trillion of package It's unprecedented, unimaginable of a magnitude of the package itself. Because there are probably only four economies in the world besides US, that is China, Japan and Germany would have more than $3 trillion of GDP. So that is the size of packages that only one country has given. Yesterday, the Europeans have come out with a new package of probably half a trillion dollars. So huge packages are being given. So where do you get this money for a package like this? One, you can go through some monetary policies. easing, more supply side money coming in. But good part of it will also be through fiscal measures. And that would mean that governments will have to borrow more. So the public debt to GDP ratios of most of the major economies of the world will be at a very alarming level. I would like to just remind you, and not you of course, but my friends, other friends that already the public debt to GDP ratio, public debt to GDP ratio In US was 116%, Japan was 243%, EU 84%, when you are giving such huge packages, what would be the impact on public debt to GDP ratio. Normally a rating agency, they advise the investors, what is the job of a rating agency? Those who use the services, they will advise the investor the risk involved in the investment. And normally, when they do the sovereign rating, they also do the corporate rating. Just imagine we should look at very seriously the possibility of some kind of sovereign default over a period of time. If not, I don't know which country, how, but the unsustainable level of debt would mean that either. Some countries will ask for rollovers, or some countries may think about renegotiation, many things will happen. Already we have heard a talk, if not officially, but some think tanks are suggesting that huge debt that US has got, the treasury bills, and good part of treasury bills of US are held by outsiders. Now Japan is holding more than China. China is the second largest holder of foreign debt holder of US treasury bills. And some are saying why not we, it's more than a trillion dollars, why not we hold back? Just imagine, I'm sure though, country will like to do it, but just imagine the impact of such a boom or even thinking like this, that sovereign debt was always said to be the most sacrosanct debt. And now if something is going to happen as a result of inability of the governments to service the debt of a magnitude like this, what would the impact? I just gave you the number of the sovereign debt of Japan, but Japan's good part of sovereign debt is domestically held. And a good part of that is that Japan has very low interest rates, close to zero. And therefore the interest liability to service the debt is not as high as it would have been in other countries. Or if the Japanese economy starts moving up again and become the interest rate become positive just imagine the impact of that on the public finances of Japan. So wow, in future we have postponed the problem and rightly so this intervention was really called for. What the world community has done, the central bankers done, the national governments are done in various countries to give this package was necessary because without that would have been even in a worse situation. The immediate problem was to increase demand as well as address supply side issues. So we have done that through fiscal and monetary measures in most of the countries, but as a result of that, we are creating a bubble for future. And that would be in the form of one, the debt. One debt which is in the public debt held by the government. I'm not even taking subsidiary debts which is held by the government through some of the subsidiary arms of the government. That again would be a huge debt. And in many countries, we are not even calculating the overall debt, which includes states like U.S. has 50 states. We are not taking that. In China, there are provincial governments, and nobody knows the real size of the provincial debt in China. And there are local governments besides provincial government. Then there are city governments like Shanghai, which has huge public debt. But we are not even calculating that, and we don't know overall extent of that debt. But still. We are heading for a big challenge in terms of public debt, which will be the question that you pose to me and to all of us. Are we staring at a big crisis? This is one of the reasons why it could happen. And servicing. See debt servicing ratio, which include interest and principal both. If it is going to consume a large part of your current income, you can imagine the catastrophe it would have. That means we are collecting taxes. For what? Largely to pay the previous debt or to pay interest on the previous debt. So who is paying the tax, your taxpayer is paying him, paying the government from his current. Whereas the government is using the taxpayer's current income, part of that current income and taxes to pay the past liabilities. So impact of that on investment or by government for benefit of the present generation who is your present taxpayer is going to lose less and less. You can imagine. The discontent it is going to brew as a result of which, which also will have adverse social consequences. So the other global crisis could come in form of social crisis also, demanding a different kind of configuration in terms of how you operate the taxation policies of the future government. And taxation is the only source by which most of the governments will be able to service the debt. So this is going to be one challenge. Second to financial economy of tomorrow would be the corporates. The corporates and particularly the major economies of the world, the G20 economies of the world are significant players into the global economic space of the world, major players. They contribute significantly to the output in most of the major economies of the world. What is the situation of most of the corporates, buying the technology companies? You can forget the top three A's, whether it's Alphabet, whether it's Apple, whether it's Amazon, most others will have a very big challenge. The corporate balance sheets will be under threat One, because of the asset prices going down. The capital markets will also play a very significant role in terms of deciding the future financial efficacy. If the corporate earnings keep dwindling, The asset prices keep falling, it would have an adverse impact on the price of a script that is traded of a company in the market. And therefore the value of the traded script is also going to decide the corporate's ability to raise future money. It's also going to decide about the ability of the corporate to be investing into the future. Investments have been going down even before this current crisis. If the investment is going to lead to the further increase in economic activity, but investments are going down. In fact, these top four companies, four or five companies in US, which are sitting on a billions of dollars of cash piles, are not making significant investments. Or the companies now in future will also find the demand going down for their products, at least in the near term would mean that why would they create more capacity? Because the demand already is low, so capacity of the existing manufacturing facility may not be optimum and therefore we will see that in future the investment will go down. Now as you know investment going down will also have an adverse effect on the economy as a whole of the world. In fact one is a domestic investment, other is cross border investment. The foreign direct investments have been going even before this present crisis have stopped, happened. In fact, we are seeing the FDI going down by almost more than 36% in 2018 as compared to the previous year. So we are now seeing that investment will go down. The corporate would actually need to acquire more debt probably to ensure that now they survive. Individuals, households will also have a big problem. The job less rate the highest in the, their history after 2030 or rather 19, 1930, the depression. Unemployment in most of the countries is high. So the houses which are less income can only survive by borrowing more. It's a question of survival. So the household debt also might go up. Just imagine, it's going to be a triple problem. Corporates. Households, sovereign, all three of them will be under heavy debt. It will have an adverse impact on the banking system. I was tell you the bank's asset, banks normally lend, keeping asset as a security. The asset price are going to fall, the banks will always try to go for a foreclosure. They might say, I want to repossess your asset because I cannot afford, I do not have enough security left against your loan. And it will again have a huge impact because if repossession starts happening, and it could again lead to the problem. The banking banks again, their own balance sheet, if their borrower's balance sheet is not good, obviously it will impact on bank's balance sheet. So banks lend bulk lending to corporates, they also do household lending through retail lending. Both portfolios, large portfolios, will be under serious challenge. And this again is going to pose a serious threat to the financial system of the world. As you know, I've already said very interestingly that before all this happened, there's a synchronized slowdown, synchronized slowdown. And now we'll see probably increased slowdown, not synchronized anymore, but increased. And therefore, we really have to think about how to go about it. The only way we can do it. Because your debt is already high. To reduce the public debt to GDP ratio, how do you do it? Either you pay off the debt, which is not possible. The only other way you can do it is by increasing the size of a GDP. If your GDP increases, as a percentage of debt, it will go down. But that again is going to create a very big problem because you will see in the future that growth itself is under threat for many of the reasons. One, the trade. Trade can actually hasten the pace of global economic growth. But WTO and all relevant organizations are under constant attack. So they are actually facing the brunt of it. But while that happens, the trade volumes itself are going down. And now we are seeing that if you want to disrupt the existing supply lines. It might help some country like India immensely, and we have to capitalize on it, but while the re-establishment of disruption happens, it is going to disrupt trade. And therefore in medium term, at least certainly short term, we will see a very big decline on global trade for demand going down, as well as disruption that will be caused because of these supply lines getting changed. That again will have a negative impact on GDP. So therefore increasing GDP through investment is little challenging because as I mentioned, through trade which otherwise could have increased is going to go down and if the demand is low, obviously export from country like India to other countries will be affected. Just imagine, and we normally think about global economy, we think about G20 which is almost more than 80% of the global economy, but what about those countries? whose global trade is depend on say one quantity alone. Some African countries export only cotton and they are not able to export anymore because of demand being low because of all these new challenges. What happens to those countries? If their entire and earnings depend on few commodities and that goes away, how would they survive? What would happen to their own obligations of servicing loans or buying? certain essential whether it is medicine or it is oil from abroad, what happens to that if you don't have exporter? So just imagine the disruption, the global economic challenge because you also must understand when there was a possibility of failure by Venezuela or by Argentina, the whole world, world suffers. It shivers just by the thought that one country is going to either have default or going to reschedule their loan obligation. Just imagine some countries like that get affected by this, what impact the cascading effect it would have on the global economy. And therefore, this is another important challenge that we will face. Again, as I said, the banks will be at the receiving end, there will be more bankruptcies, there will be more job losses as a result of which banks will not be able to get their loan service by the borrowers, asset quality, not just asset pricing. Also will be very badly affected. And therefore, we'll see more market failures. And they will come already. Many aviation companies have filed for bankruptcies. There are many companies people are saying that some loss which which have been now overloaded, they may not be called back again for jobs at all. So bankruptcies will happen in aviation or tourism. This will happen. In global capacity creation, some countries, how are the business plans were prepared before this? A boardroom of a multinational company will think about, I want to make this product, I will make to make it at a global scale. That means I will not look at only the market in my domestic economy, but I will look at it, how can I sell this product globally? So you have created global capacities. And when there are global disruptions, those capacities will become redundant or at least if not obsolete, it will not non-functional. So that again will have a very adverse impact on market failures. So market failures will become reality, which again will be a threat to a big challenge for the global economy. Also oil. oil, nobody could imagine, could fall below $20 or go almost $10. Again, now it has recovered to $30, but just imagine, the oil best economies, whether it is shale oil, whether it is shale gas or whether it is liquid fuel, fired vehicles, transportation, whether aviation fuel that is necessary for flying from one end to another. What happens to all that and again that might lead to very big market failures, which again will have an adverse impact on the global economy and it's a big challenge. To the future. Other aspect which we don't consider normally, but we cannot ignore it anymore, is a threat of climate change to the global economy. The climate change, and today we are already facing a small little consequence of a fun pandemic. Just imagine the, what scientists have always feared. There's the IPCC Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change consisting of scientists from all over the world has said that threat of climate change is real and which is going to have economic cost. And Nick Stern, Lord Nick Stern from London School of Economics, former Chief Economist World Bank has always been warning us the economic consequences of climate change. And when that happens, you will see soon the effect on global economy, the threat that is going to pose, which you're asking a very pose a very pertinent question and UNEP, United Nations Environment Programme has said the cost of adaptation to climate change by 2050 will be $280 to $500, 500 billion, $280 to $500 billion dollars a year, which is five to six times more than what was estimated earlier. What is the impact on adaptation costs on world economy? Just imagine the economy. So this is another threat to in the medium term to the global economy. And the government ability in such a situation to save the economic challenges is diminishing rapidly. In 2007-2008, we saved the banks by putting in public money. Of course, some of the public money was well reviewed subsequently. But now, if there is an as we already agree that we are heading for a crisis, we don't have an ability because most of the governments are over-leveraged. And therefore, they'll find it very difficult. Another issue, as I said, and the social aspect of that, which again will have an adverse impact on economic consequences, is the spending on infrastructure governments and on social spending on healthcare, education, etc., etc., which is more needed now, but ability of the government because of the debt servicing obligations, because of pre-committed taxation money going into the obligation, will have less and less money coming into such sectors like infrastructure and social sectors, which again might have a very important issue related to that. We have already seen ASEAN facing in mid 90s a very big currency crisis, that time then Prime Minister of Malaysia had said that this currency crisis that was a currency crisis, this was not a financial crisis, currency crisis which happened why? Because of too much of money went out of my country without any knowledge because of fifth banking you can take the money out without any knowledge, today what is the situation? so much of liquidity thanks to the big packages, billions of dollars coming to the market with low interest rates which has been a part of monetary policy of the central bank too much money with very little cost is available with the global economy. They will chase certain stocks, they might go after some currencies and once they win that country might face huge challenges like it happened in ASEAN. In mid-90s. So that again is going to pose serious threat to the global economy coming from currency end. We are thought about from monetary end, from fiscal end, but also from the currency market, which is a different market altogether. And at a time like this, the psychology of investor matters. Are we willing to face challenges and I will like to take my country forward like Germans did or Japanese did after the Second World War? But today, the world is fearing of going out and shaking hands with others. People are worried to have business conferences. So at a time like this, the business confidence, psychology of investment will matter, which is at a very, very low level and will be at low level. So in a situation like this, I would like to dwell upon what is that we should be doing. I think it's a time to reallocate the world resources properly. We'll have to reallocate them in a way that we put some money for repayment of the previous obligation like debt and interest but do not forget the responsibility towards the present generation. We should meet past obligations but should also not overlook the aspirations of today's and tomorrow's generations, And therefore, we have to allocate resources properly, reallocate them. Make sure that we follow the climate-proof policies when making economic decisions. We should also think about, and this is very important, we have a prudential banking norms. The Basel, the International Bank for Statement in Basel comes out with those norms. IMF has certain parameters. I think it's a time we think about prudential laws for public finances. We we'll have to think about it very seriously to ensure that we don't get into a serious financial crisis in future. We we'll have to think about new global institutions. The institutions, as I was saying in the beginning, the stress test of them will reveal that they cannot withstand the shocks. They are not any longer a shock absorbers. So we. We are using a car without a shock absorber, we like to discard the car, right? And at least buy a new shock absorber. It is the time to revisit the role of this so-called global institutions, the Bretton Woods institutions and others, and think about how we should try to take them into The point you mentioned, the role of the reserved currency will also matter a lot. What will the role of a reserved currency for the world? What will matter in future will be the competitiveness of all, competitiveness for currency, competitiveness of economy, competitiveness of business and industry and that competitiveness will be brought in in a more issue. I think the new world will be looking like to look at avoiding financial crisis of a magnitude that we are facing at, how to look local to global, then global to local. It is a new vision we'll have to adopt and therefore I'm very happy that Prime Minister Modi has already talked about local. And be vocal. I think we have to be local and vocal but I think our vision will have to be focal on this point of how to build a sustainable financial system, a sustainable living lifestyle, a sustainable social structure and that should be the point, the focal point of our new thinking. So we are certainly, if you ask me in one line, we are certainly heading for yet another financial crisis. But the collective wisdom of the world, the collective response of all the people in the world could probably help us to avoid it or at least make sure that we don't suffer very adverse consequences. Interestingly, and that's why we are discussing this in context of Covid. G20 is not just more than 80% of the global economy. G20 also accounts for more than 80% of deaths and more than 80% of the infections out of COVID. So I don't know what is the relationship. G20, higher incorporating output, but also higher infection and higher fatalities. I think let G20 now become infection-wise, we are the same. We have to avoid the new economic balance infection. We should not result into any more casualty of the economy. Can we avoid it? Yes, we can, it. we work in tandem and we keep focal attention on such issues. I think we can work on it. We can avoid it. I'm sure we'll be able to succeed in that. But once again, thank you my dear friend Dr. Rajat Kathuria, as well as a great institution like ICREA for bringing such people together. And I can very clearly look forward to you have invited me for one more time. I was thinking only one more. I would be happy to be there. <laughs> one more than one. But thank you very much for this honor. I consider it as a great honor to be inaugurating this great series that will unveil so many new ideas and try to bring in so many different people together. Thank you very much. I, I was just looking at time. I hope I've spoken in the time that was allotted to me. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you so much. Uh... That was the most insightful uh, talk and uh, many ideas that uh, we will take from here and as you said that it has come at a time when the economy, uh, global economy was already slowing down. So this is a bigger challenge for all of us because this has been a double whammy and therefore we need to respond much better and much more collectively and therefore multilateralism will be the linchpin of what we do uh, in the future. I think also that whenever there's been a crisis, that have done some reform. We've already begun some reform. And I hope, as you said, in the area of climate, in the area of infrastructure, in the area of investment, in the area of taxation, public there there are opportunities to make uh, some reform in India. Thank you very much. And we look forward to hosting you again in the future, very, very soon, not once, but many more times. Uh, and I will also now throw open uh, the floor for audience questions. If you like, you can ask questions. If you like, you can type them out, and I will read them out to Sri Suresh Prabhuji. Uh, anybody? Anybody has? I think. Rajat. Uh... Um, get... Yes, please
2: um sorry let me put my video on yeah. um while you're waiting for more learned people oh dear I, um, uh, there we go um i was very uh, well thank you um sudeshi for your remarks uh, and i uh, just i was particularly interested that you focused on the financial dimensions uh, i'm hearing an echo is the echo on your side no <laughs> no okay um uh going back to 2008 uh, gordon round at the london summit declared that the world needed a new breton woods and there were various initiatives like this stiglitz report Etc. Uh, to examine the issue of the global monetary order, uh, and what we have certainly seen is that the global monetary order, which is dollar-based but also dollar and euro, has given policy space to the United States, to the EU, to the Japan. To do all kinds of things that frankly are not available to the emerging markets. Now, because there was no US interest in pursuing this issue, and because uh, there was little US interest in even looking at governance of the IMF, as you know, the G20 finance ministers have now pushed the 16th review uh till 2021 or 2022 uh the while there's been a lot on financial reform uh at uh, the fsb the issue of monetary reform has kind of gone off the table and we have an opportunity uh, with the indian presidency and the indonesian presidency to prepare to bring the issue back on the table in work that I did for uh, the the think tank Bruegel in Brussels, I argued that the former's challenge facing the G20 was the safe integration of the Chinese and Indian financial systems into global finance. And exactly as you said in your remarks, that is not feasible in the present financial and monetary arrangements with hot money flows, with uh, asymmetric constraints between the emerging markets and the metropolitan countries in freedom of action. So I would just make the plea to ICRIA, to you, to RIS, etc. that there be a work stream that gets initiated following upon the report of the eminent persons group to say what reforms in the global monetary system are uh, necessary for a level playing field for the emerging markets.
1: Thank you, Rajat, thank you, sir. I think uh, Dr. Suman Berry, my dear friend, nice to see you again. I hope you're okay. But I'm, I'm very, well. Thank, thank you, you. thank you for bringing this up. Um, as a farmer, World Bank uh, Chief Economist, as well as you have played many, many roles in all these areas, including used to be one of our think tank uh, heading, of course, you also worked Shell and looked at many global options. So I think very good ideas what you said. I fully agree with you. In fact, it's a good suggestion that we should try to look at this, revisit this issue, and it is so important. I would just say that reforming monetary policy is one part, but what is important is the institution's role. If we don't have right institutions to address issues, so again, we'll get bogged down into it. So I think we should happen same time, parallelly, that we should work on reforming institutions, like say, IMM, and make sure they become more focused on the issues that are necessary, at the same time, working on the issue. But point is very well taken. I thank you for this very good suggestion. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you. Thank you for that, uh, Suman, and thank you for that response. And we we'll certainly take this up as we work towards uh, uh, in 2022, there is another question, Suresh Prabhuji. I think that sort of triggers from your remark about, uh, you know, what can Indian companies do, and the fact that you know some of the internet companies have been doing better than other brick-and-mortar companies in the recent past. So, is India at an advantageous position with respect to its positive internet rate? This is from Suchita and she also goes on to ask, what should India do to attract? New businesses that may come as a result of some of the businesses leaving China?
1: So, you know, there are obviously uh, internet-based trade, or what you call it as e-commerce, is undoubtedly proliferate. It has actually hastened the process during this uh, lockdown period. But even earlier, this was a clear trend. In fact, very interestingly, when most of the companies lost their market caps, Amazon increased the market cap. And therefore, or in our Indian context, also if we can look at it, while everybody was worried about the new business, Mukesh Ambani, our top industrialist, could attract huge FDI into only one of his vertical, that is Jio, um, that Jio Teleform. They call it by different name. I think Jio Digital or something. But they, they got invested into that. So that shows that Indian companies will have an advantage e-commerce is going to increase. In fact, for that only we had e-commerce policy when I was a minister of commerce industry with involving 70, 80 top people and that top policy was kept on the website which is under now. batteries battery under works. So Indian companies will have a special uh, advantage. Our domestic size of economy also could be an attraction. So we'll have an advantage on that. But bigger and mortar against e-commerce is going to be they will keep fighting each other like we always fight the fresh water and the saline water keep fighting where the, the sea meets the uh, river this is bound to happen brick mortar and new economies will keep but i think we need both no doubt about it e-commerce is uh, footprint will increase but that doesn't mean brick mortar is going to die a natural death they will in fact also survive and do well the second part is attracting companies into India. I think already Prime Minister Modi has announced a lot of policies. We can benefit from it. Uh, We probably need to work on so many issues. You know, what happens is the challenge is that some of the other countries, they can do something which we cannot do it all the time. For example, land in India is not owned by the government. It is actually private owned. government has to acquire and give it. Now, fortunately, we have a good land land bank under the Mumbai industrial corridor, which is already under construction. So there are certain nodes which can be given. Some states have already acquired some land for industrial development. Actually, just after independence, more or less all the states set up their own industrial development corporations, And those industrial development corporations we're actually providing industrial estates because that time the our thought also was very limited. So we are small little industrial estate. We call it gala. We do this there, but now some state governments also have some land so we can work on that. But we have to work on attracting investment for sure. Uh, and mind you, and uh, Icriar will tell you better than me because they are very well equipped to offer these advice to you. Is that FDI? which is when we are attracting investment, obviously it's an FDI. Other companies coming and investing in India will be a foreign investment into India. They would also look at all our trade policies. They look at all our taxation policies. They will look at all other relevant commercial laws and industrial laws applicable. So we'll have to align all that and take a call. Luckily, Prime Minister Modi has been perioding it. He understands the importance of it. He's providing leadership to it. And therefore, I think we should be able to succeed in getting it to India. Thank you. Thank you, Suresh Prabhuji. There,
0: there are a few other questions. Let me present them together so that you can respond collectively. Uh, there are a couple of questions on G20. What should India focus on in its presidency of the G20 uh, in 2022? What are areas of our own comparative advantage? Uh, This is from Saurabh Kumar in Katz. Then there is Archita Anand from IDSA who is asking whether there is any consensus among G20 countries on the way forward or how can we develop that consensus given that we are in a major crisis now, uh, can we develop a consensus among G20 countries. There's one more question. Um, Would you advise whether we should actually, this could be a trigger to more frugal living in the future given that we have exploited so much of our resources is this a message for more frugal living for the future so these are related to g20 sureshi and there are a couple of other questions which i will come back if you have time
1: but could you address these yeah okay see number one is uh as far as the g20 is consensus is con actually you know despite so many differences g20 ultimately agrees on something for example the last summit that took place in Osaka, barring one, or rather the entire statement, it was by all 20 countries. Only one had 90s plus one. Otherwise, all agreed on that. So, therefore, there is a possibility of uh, we agreeing now, we we'll have to work on that. And we, we are actively engaged with Minister Modi, has been interacting with all the global leaders. We are also doing that to support it. And therefore, I think we should be able to move towards arriving uh, at some consensus on that issue. And the first issue about India's priority, I think that's a work under progress. In fact, we are inviting ideas. You also can give idea, uh, is for major research institution, So you can talk to them. We can work together, find out. The RIS is also doing that work. They're working with universities. They're talking to a lot of think tanks, and we'll be developing it. But I think we should be doing that soon. On frugal, frugal living, there is no doubt about it. In fact, we have. And that's what I was saying, reallocation of resources. I mentioned it. And when I say resource, is it natural resource also? We have to now seriously think about, we have been thinking that there are so many planets available to us. So we have finished few, but we can get into some more. And that was a fallacy, which has come to, we are, has hit us very badly through the pandemic, when we realized that we cannot conquer nature. Till that time, we are thinking we can do anything with technology, we can solve all problems. But technology can solve problem for sure, but it has a limitation. And one limitation of technology is we cannot recreate a natural capital. No technology can recreate water, cannot recreate biodiversity, it cannot. And therefore, if we do not live in harmony, with the natural resources available to us, we do proper resource planning, we are heading for different, I mentioned it, though I didn't expand it, I think, but we, you are absolutely right, we learn to do that. I think, Doctor, I have to go for other program, but I can take another five minutes if you want. Another two, two sets of questions, maybe.
0: OK, just uh, uh, there are two more questions, Sureshi, so I'll read them out to you. So both of them are related, again, to what you had mentioned, uh, that the world is facing a problem of excess capacity. Most, as you mentioned, corporates are not doing well. There is overcapacity, capacity. And at a time like this, this is uh, uh, Lalit, Mr. Lalit, was asking the question. Do you think there will be a tendency therefore for countries to become sort of more protectionist and more inward looking and focus on self-reliance in this context because companies are not doing well? And there's another question uh, related to this is that should G20 punish China for what it has done uh, by you know, isolating it? Uh, and there's one last question. What is, what is the new banking system that we are looking at among the big uh, uh, banks? For, uh, or What is the nature of the banking system? Will there be only limited to fixed deposits and recurring deposits and no investments in, in mutual funds and equities, given the state of the capital market? So this is the last set of questions. Sureshi, if you thank, could you. thank you. Thank you.
1: So let me uh, start with the first one. See, the protectionism was already rising. And a consequence of protectionism is that you keep shrinking even more. As I was saying, when we have such a large public debt, only we can reduce the public debt to GDP ratio or improve it, not reduce but improve it by increasing your GDP. Because debt is a foregone conclusion. It is already occurred. If it is 100 billion dollars, it is 100 billion dollars. If it is 3 trillion dollars, you have taken debt because you wanted to finance your package, that 3 trillion dollars is the actual reality, it cannot change. But you can make public debt to GDP ratio better by increasing size of your GDP and to increase size of GDP as has been proved that we need proper intelligent trading policies. which should be designed in such a way that we every country become protectionist. I will tell you the problem. I, this is a very interesting thing which I used to tell as a commerce minister. Dr. Rajat Kothuriya must have heard it. I has to say that this is a good idea that we say that we'll only export. Every country, every country. So I say I will only export. So what Dr. Rajat Kathuria is going to say, in my country, also I will only export. So my friend who has asked the question, his country will say, I will only only export. So all the countries in the world say it's a very good idea coming from Dr. Rajat Kathuria that we'll only export. So all countries decide only to export and not to import. Then what happens to your export? If all the countries in the world say that we'll only export and not import anything, then can anybody export? So this is ultimately, we'll have to think about calibrated trade policies for all over the world. And only forum for that WTO, therefore we'll have to work on that properly. So I think that is one part. The second part, which you want to know about a banking system, how they'll function. I'm a banker myself, I should be the chairman of the largest corporate bank whenever 31. So 31. But I think the banking is also going to change. The banks, they have a big problem of bank is when they accept deposits, it's the cost center for them. So bank taking deposit, they have to service the deposit. The bank don't make money by taking deposit. Bank make money by lending money. But of course, they, if they don't accept deposit, how will they lend? So now the question that you're asking about the exposure of the banking system to the capital market. That is in so many countries, there is enough regulation, including in India, that how much of banks can dabble into the capital market. In fact, the bank as intermediary cannot become another intermediary into capital market in most of the countries. So we'll have to think about that in a proper manner. As far as the third question about China, I think G20 today has 20 countries, which are known, which are those 20 countries. They are drawn by the size of the economies. And therefore, from 1 to 20, is the size of the 20 countries' economies who are part of a G20 country. So I think I'm really happy that I could get an opportunity. And Dr. Katuriya, you have invited me again. So I will get more opportunities to interact. I have to speak on another webinar. But thank you very much for this great opportunity. And looking forward to working with you.
0: Thank you, Suresh Prabhuji. That was a most insightful talk, and we have learned a lot. Thank you so much for coming. And uh, we will be circulating uh, to the audience that is uh, attended here we'll be developing a short summary of what you have said including uh, the question answer sessions uh, for uh, reference to people who were not able to be here with us but thank you Suresh Prabhuji thank you all the participants for all the questions i'm sorry we could not take all your questions but in the future we'll continue with this monthly series there'll be another speaker next time you can please join us and hopefully we'll have an opportunity to address some of the questions that haven't been addressed uh, in this session, but Suresh Prabhuji, thank you for inaugurating our G20 at 22 series and I think it has gone off to a great start because of you, it has been a most stimulating talk and many of the ideas, as I said, we will continue to take in our part of our, continue to take forward in our research that we do towards G20 at 2022. Thank you all very much for coming. Thank you.